Hello, Lou. This is Dick Williams, general manager of the Cincinnati Reds. How would you like to manage the Reds this year? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? This is your chance to manage in the big leagues. Let me think it over, will you? I got a guy on the other line about some white walls. I'll talk to you later. I really do imagine that would be the reaction of anybody who got a call from the Cincinnati Reds right now asking them if they wanted to be the manager of the team. Oh my goodness, my beloved Cincinnati Reds. How bad are they right now? 8-27, they fired their manager a couple of weeks ago. They didn't even get out of April. They are terrible. Brian Price out. Jim Riggleman in. Jim Riggleman, who I remember when he used to manage the Cubs from when they were still just the Cubs. Those were the Mark Grace, Ryan Sandberg, Sammy Sosa years. We watched a lot of Cubs games on WGN back in Williamsburg, Indiana, because we couldn't get red games back then on cable. The Fox Sports regional channels were in their infancy, and we did not have Fox Sports Ohio back then, and there was really no good way to watch the Reds. There's a separate conversation to be had there as far as why the Indianapolis fan base loves the Cubs, but they're pretty indifferent with the Reds, and a lot of that's probably tied to the lack of exposure of Reds games. I know that I have a cousin who is a huge fan of the Atlanta Braves, and there's nothing really wrong with that. He grew up in the same town that I did, but part of the reason that he likes the Braves is because they were good in the 90s and in the 2000s, and you could always find their games back then, on TV, thanks to TBS. With the Reds, you didn't have that coverage, so maybe that's why we've sort of siphoned off some Reds fans over the years, although the 8-27 and record this year certainly doesn't help. It's been a rough year. Now, it seems like every time I've turned into a Reds game this year, they have been down, and this is early in the games, too. This isn't just, you know, tune into the sixth inning and they're down. This is Tune into the third inning, and they're already behind by two or more runs. I kept telling myself, oh, no, that's just your imagination. You're imagining things. There's no way that they've been down all that much throughout the season. And I've watched a fair share of Reds games. I'd say I have probably seen uh, 75 to 80% of the games, at least part of the games. Sometimes they've been on late. Sometimes, you know, you get busy and with baseball and 162 games and they play almost every day, it seems like during the summer, you're going to miss one. You just can't. It's it's way too much to keep up on unless you are dedicated and you're going to sit down and take that three hours every night and watch the game. But I, I can't begrudge fans who do that. Sometimes you miss one. It's a little, it's more demanding as a fan from a time commitment perspective than, say, football, where you really only have to worry about one Colts game a week or one Notre Dame game a week. Or basketball, where it's maybe, you know, two or three Pacers games in a week, or two or three IU or Purdue or Butler games or what have you during the regular season. Baseball demands a lot of you as a fan if you're going to try to catch every game. And even the Pacers, who's I, I probably saw all or at least a portion of 
90% of Pacers games this year. They play every couple days. The ones I missed were on the West Coast. They tip at 10.30. There's no way that I'm going to be able to watch those games. It's a lot easier, and your basketball games are a little over two hours as well until you get to the playoffs where you have bigger commercial breaks and things seem to get dragged out a little bit more. But it's, it's less of a time commitment, which... Even with baseball, they've tried to do some things to speed the games up, you know, as far as time between pitches and getting guys to the mound and the intentional walk rule. You want to intentionally walk this guy, then send him to first base instead of having the crowd sit through four pitches to try to get a guy intentionally walked, which, you know, you may miss a little bit of the drama of that. You know, the the pitcher misfiring and letting the, the runner advance or something like that. But it, it happens so seldom. I really don't mind that particular rule change. To get back to the Reds, I had mentioned that I felt like they faced early deficits in all the games that I've watched this year. And while you can't say all of the games I've watched this year, it has happened frequently. I did just a a quick survey of the box scores of the Reds' first 35 games this season. They have been down in 21 of the 35 games, and not just they've trailed in those games. They have faced a deficit in the first four innings of those games. And sometimes, you know, you can throw some of those out. It's, It's a run, the pitcher gives up a home run the first inning or whatever, but most of the time it is two or more runs that they are down. Just listen to some of these deficits. I'll just, I'm not going to run through the whole list, but I'm going to run through a few of them. Second game of the year against the Nationals, down 3 to nothing in the first inning. In their series with the Pirates, they're down 4 to nothing. Now, they did come back to win that one. In St. Louis, down 4 to nothing after four innings. Again in St. Louis, 4 to nothing after two innings. In uh, the Twins series, one of their more recent ones, down 7 to 3 after four innings. In the Marlins series, down 5 to nothing after two innings, down 5 to nothing after three innings to the Mets last night. So in 21 of the Reds' 35 games, they've started out with a deficit in the first four innings. That means they are playing behind 60% of the time early in the game. Now, it doesn't really... Baseball's a funny game. You jump on a team early, it has a little bit of a psychological effect. It's not quite like the NBA where you can get down by 15 points in the second quarter and work your way back into it. Sure, the Reds have come back and won some of those games, but they've only won three of those 21 games in which they've been down. And again, I am talking about early deficits. There have been other games where they have been ahead late and they've lost the lead or they've lost the lead late or the other team has scored their runs later in the game. I am specifically addressing the early problems that they have had in ball games, and you just cannot play from behind all of the time. In 60% of their games this year, they have faced a deficit of at least one run, but most of the time, two or more runs in the first four innings of the game. A one-run deficit in baseball, not all that much. It's really not. You've got eight more innings to get back if you get down one run in the first. But when you start stacking runs, and you, you heard some of those leads, Four to nothing, three to nothing, seven to three, five to nothing. It creates a huge problem. You're depending on your offense to come and bring you back when it is glaringly obvious that your pitching 
is not very good. So why are the Reds 8-27? and Well, it's because they have trailed early in 21 games, and they've only come back to win three of them. So three of those eight games that they've won this season are comebacks from when they faced those early deficits. I've watched a couple games where they have gotten some decent starts from their pitchers, and you think, well, you know, they're not getting much run support. But the fact is, these early deficits are stacking up for this team, and that's why they're so bad. And they don't have a great offense, which is puzzling in some ways, because they're getting some good performances from their leadoff guy, Winker. And you've got Joey Votto in that lineup, and Shebler. They're just... Not a good baseball team. And all you have to do is look at some team statistics. The Reds rank 24 out of 30 in runs scored. They are 22nd in RBI and 19th in batting average. So near the bottom in the first two categories. Still at the bottom but closer to the middle of the pack in terms of batting average. They are 29th out of 30 in slugging percentage which tells you the offense is bad. They don't score runs early and they can't dig out of holes very easily, and they face a hole every single game, it feels like. It is the majority of their games that they have played, that they have faced deficits. I mean, I just turned it over on the weekend. I turned on the game. Boom. Guy hits a home run. They're down 2 to nothing in the first. Already frustrating to watch. And then you see the offense come out on the field and do nothing to make it better. There was a span where Joey Votto would hit a home run in four straight games after going several weeks into the season without hitting one, and you thought maybe things would pick up a little bit, and they they had some good performances where the offense showed up and provided some run support. Some of those games they won, some of those games they lost, obviously. They're 8-27, so they didn't win a whole lot of them. But as inconsistent, bad, you could charitably say mediocre, but I'm just going to go with bad and unless things get better on the offensive end. It's nothing compared to their pitching, which is absolutely atrocious. The Reds rake dead last in Major League Baseball in Team ERA, at 5.26. The next closest team, the pretty much equally terrible Chicago White Sox at 9 and 23, 5.08 for their team RA. So it's not been good for the Reds this year. I should mention I'm recording on a Tuesday, so these stats are up to date as of the afternoon of May 8th. 2018, and it's important to say that because, as I mentioned earlier, baseball pretty much happens every day, so by the time you record a weekly podcast and get published, you're going to probably listen to it a couple of days later, and the the exact numbers on the statistics aren't going to be the same, but they're going to be close enough because I don't expect the Reds to buck any trends in the next three or four days. So not a lot of wins coming out of that pitching staff. They lead the league in losses, although the Baltimore Orioles are giving them a run for their money. Just Baltimore has played one less game than the Reds, so the Reds have 27 losses, while the Orioles have 26. Their team ERA is 4.95. The Reds have four saves and seven save opportunities as a team. Rysel Iglesias has four of those five in save chances, 
And if Bob Eucher's Harry Doyle were here, he would be like, seven save opportunities? Are you telling me we have seven bleeping save opportunities on the season in 35 games? That is exactly where the Reds are. They've given up the sixth most hits in Major League Baseball. They've given up a league worst or league best, whichever the way you want to view this, 56 home runs this year. And and yes, they do play in the home run friendly confines of Great American Ballpark. It's because the pitching is getting torched day in and day out. Teams are batting 268 against the Reds. 27th in the league or fourth worst. Definitely not fourth best. Combine the starting pitchers have an ERA of 5.8. Listen to just some of these astonishing numbers. Homer Bailey, 0-5 this season, 5.61 ERA. He's given up 11 home runs and 8 starts this season. It's not the worst. Actually, he's second worst in the majors. Someone's given up 13 for the Indians. Some of our other winners here, Luis Castillo, A bright spot for the Reds last year, cannot find the strike zone, cannot get it going this year. 7.01 ERA, 1-4 and and 7 starts. Tyler Malley, 4.35, 2-4 and 7 starts. He's actually pitched fairly well. Sal Romano, 4.21, 2-3 7 starts. And really, those two younger pitchers, we've seen some good things from, but not enough. And obviously, when they do pitch well, they're not getting run support. Brandon Finnegan was really good for the Reds a couple years ago. He's been battling injuries since he has come back. He's had five starts, 0-3, with an ERA of 8.27. And then in a spot start, Cody Reed, 0-0, no decision in his start. His ERA hanging around 5.4, but he's made a lot of relief appearances as well. But hey, you know what? Help is on the way for the Reds because they have traded for Matt Harvey, who has been chased out of New York, and they got rid of Devin Mesoraco. So I don't expect that to help at all. But hey, at least they made a move, right? The relief staff not providing much relief. You've got Gallardo with a 30.86 ERA. That's over a small sample size of three games. Quackenbush, an ERA of 11 in 10 games, so that's a pretty large sample size. Wandy Peralta, an ERA of 5.06 in 18 games. So those last two guys have been making a lot of appearances for the Reds, and their ERAs are not where you want them to be. Nothing like bringing a reliever into the game to staunch the bleeding, only to see him give up a bunch of runs. Curiously, Peralta hasn't given up a home run all season. Most of his runs that they've gotten off of him, coming off of base hits, none of it's good, really, for the Reds. You see these relievers with multiple appearances, just not putting up good numbers. To be fair... Some of these relievers are also being gang-pressed into some pretty crappy situations thanks to their bad starting pitching. That means they're putting in more innings, they're getting long relief appearances, and they're coming into situations where teams are already getting guys on base and they've they've chased a pitcher in the third or fourth inning. There are some bright spots. Amir Garrett's pitched well this year. He's appeared in 15 games of 1.96 ERA, struck out 21 guys. He's been pretty good, probably their steadiest guy that I've seen this year. Then Rysel Iglesias, 14 games he's appeared in, 4 of 5 in save opportunities, 1.84 
ERA. It's not all bad, but it's mostly not good. And I'm not trying to be a, a bitter fan who's going to just complain about the ball club. Man, it has been tough to watch these guys. And it's only the second week of May. And it's already a chore to watch the team. Now, that's not going to stop me from turning into the game and seeing how things are going. When you turn in, things are not going to be good. Because they they have been down in many of the games that I've watched this season. I remember texting my brother a couple of weeks ago when I tuned in, and they were actually ahead in the game. And that was the first game all season that I had tuned in early, and they were not down. And listen, no one expected much from the Cincinnati Reds this season. I think everybody knows they've been in this rebuilding phase for what feels like forever. They've gotten rid of their most popular players, aside from Votto, who has a huge contract. And I, I love Joey Votto. I mean, if there is a reason to watch the Cincinnati Reds, it is to tune in and see what he's doing in the three slot. Because that guy can hit. Flat out hit. And Joey usually gets off to slow starts. Joey's not having a great season right now. He always gets off to a slow start. For a time, he was really flirting with 200 there and, and 220. Now he's up to 282 because once Vado gets going, it's, it's tough to stop him. So while he didn't have a home run for the first couple weeks of the season, now he's got five. Eugenio Suarez is back after a thumb injury. And he's been on fire the first few games that he's been back. He leads the team in RBI with 21. And the other thing you've got to remember with Votto is while 282 is good now, and I think that average is going to trend up because once Votto gets going, man, that guy gets on a hot streak and it just feels like it lasts forever. He's also got that on-base percentage, and that is above 40% right now, 404 for Votto, and that's because he draws so many walks, you know, in that three slot, they know that most teams know that's the only guy the Reds have, you pitch around Votto, because he's really the only guy who's going to hurt you, which means he sees fewer pitches than a lot of these guys, means his margin for error is smaller, but Votto's been doing that his whole career, I don't think it really bothers him, I don't really think much of anything bothers Votto when it comes to hitting He's just that good at it. And I do feel like some of these averages are starting to come up a little bit for these guys. Shebler's getting up there a little bit. Jeanette's dropped about 289 now, but that's about where you would expect him to be. Probably the biggest disappointment. While he is tied for the team lead in home runs with five, and you expect Duvall to, Adam Duvall, not to have a high on base percentage, and he's going to strike out a lot, he's batting 164. And I think, you know, for your power hitters, your guys whose game is purely based on the long ball, like Duvall, you would expect him to have that average closer to the 240, 250 range. That's ideally where you want him to, to be. He's had a rough season and a slow start, and that's not helped the offense at all. And it feels like he's striking out more than he has in the past, but not as much as Billy Hamilton, who has 34 strikeouts and is leading the team. The Reds just don't know what to do with this poor guy. He is Willie Mays Hayes. He is so fast. I think I mentioned that in a previous podcast, the one about Major League, that Billy reminds me a lot of Willie Mays Hayes because he can run really fast, but he's not a great hitter. The problem is the Reds don't know what to do with him. In some games, they're batting him ninth and putting the pitcher in the eighth slot, and that is limiting the number of plate appearances that Billy Hamilton is getting. They're trying to protect him. He doesn't have a very good eye either. You can be fast. 
you can be a not great hitter and be a decent leadoff hitter. And what I mean by that is just because you don't hit for high average, if you can take a few pitches here and there and get on base, that benefits your team. Hamilton's on base percentage isn't that great either. It's about 319, and it should be much higher for that guy. Right now, he is tied with Peraza with five steals. And again, 34 strikeouts, and he has drawn 17 walks, which is tied with Barnhart for third most on the team. Maybe I should give Billy a little bit more credit. I mean, the, the guy does play a fantastic center field. He leads the team in runs scored, but that average and that on-base percentage for a guy that you want to be your leadoff guy, just not getting it done. This is Sports Rants Volume 2, so that is my rant on the Cincinnati Reds this season. I am still going to tune in. Nothing's going to stop me from watching the Reds game on an afternoon or in the evening. I'm going to turn it on, check on them, see how they're doing. It's just I might be reading a book at the same time just because I just don't know what we're going to get from them. Well, actually, I do know what we're going to get from them, and that is a lack of scoring and terrible starting pitching and terrible relief pitching. If they could ever get a lead to Iglesias, they have a good chance of winning the game, but they've only gotten to him five times, and even one of those he blew. I watched that game. They had a three-run lead, four-run lead, I think, by the time he came in. Then it became a save situation, so they brought him in, and they coughed that one up. They ended up winning that game in extra innings, I believe. That's the one that I'm thinking of. They had it in the bag, bringing out Iglesias. He gagged, and then the Reds won in extra innings. I think it took 12 innings and a walk-off home run from Scooter Jeanette. They're my team. I love the guys. I love to watch Vado play. When Hamilton gets on base, there really is not a lot that's more fun than watching Billy Hamilton run the bases because he can get anywhere he needs to go as fast as he needs to get there. And his center field play is truly wonderful to watch. There are very few balls out there that get hit into the outfield that Billy Hamilton can't get to. So while I do get frustrated with the strikeouts and the lack of consistently getting on base, Hamilton does have a a lot of good qualities. That is why the Reds continue to stick with him. But as a fan... It's really frustrating because you know the potential that's there and you just don't see it realized. Boy, I tell you, that's a little therapeutic. It feels good to talk a little bit about the Reds. Now, it's funny because my brother called me or texted me a couple of weeks ago, you know, because nobody really calls anybody anymore, and asked me if I wanted to go to a game in June with him and our dad. And, of course, I was really excited. That was a couple of weeks ago. I said, oh, sure, yeah, I'll go with you guys to a game in June. That'll be fun to go down and see a game. And then, you know, you see the Reds are drawing, like, 9,000 people a game right now, and you're thinking, is it really going to be fun? Are they going to be fun to watch? But, hey, it's Major League Baseball. It's the Cincinnati Reds. It's my team. You never know. You might roll the dice. They might win that game. And in any way... Anytime you get to see Joey Votto hit in person is a good day because that guy does it like no other. He can get down 0-2 in an account, and you still expect him to get a hit. You can put a shift on him. You expect him to get a hit. One of my favorite ball players to watch hit ever. Just love Votto. 
Boy, that is therapeutic to talk about the Reds and how tough it's been so far this season. They're not going to win the division. Maybe they can not embarrass themselves the rest of the season. Some experts had them losing 90 or 100 games this year. I thought, ah, there's no way that's going to happen, but maybe it will. They're, they're in that danger zone right now where if they don't start winning some games, they are going to be historically bad. They're already off to a historically bad start, like the worst start since the Great Depression for the Reds because they've played baseball in Cincinnati for a very long time. <sighs> Still love the Red Legs, though. Just as an aside, they have... Mr. Redlegs, who is the guy with, like, the handlebar mustache. And then there's Mr. Red, who's, like, the clean-shaven guy with the baseball head. I've always preferred Mr. Red to Mr. Redlegs. Don't know why that is. Maybe it's the mustache. I don't trust him. I don't know. All right, now let's move on to something extremely topical. The NFL draft, which, you know, was a couple weeks ago. But I didn't really weigh in and talk about my thoughts on the Indianapolis Colts because... I thought it was time to talk about Blade Runner and Avengers Infinity War. And to tell you the truth, after watching the Reds a little bit last night and seeing that game, I was actually ready to talk about Avengers Infinity War a little bit more. But as I said, it's a little bit uh, therapeutic to talk about the team. And so I just want to talk a little bit in general about the Colts. Yeah, it's a little late for an NFL draft recap. But, you know, I was listening to, to JMV. He's the local, uh, one of the local radio sports talk show guys here in Indianapolis. And they're still talking about the draft. But they don't have a pro team here, a pro baseball team to talk about. Or a, a, I should say they don't have a major league baseball team to talk about we have the indianapolis indians they've got a great stadium and victory field and i love going to watch the indians play but they're not exactly great sports talk fodder here in the market so we would rather much rather talk about the pacers and the colts in the first volume of sports rants the colts had not yet traded that pick to the jets they still were sticking at number three overall and I sort of went through the scenarios in my head, and I said I didn't think Barkley was going to be there, but Chubb probably would be, so they would get one of the two most coveted players in the draft. And then I said another option would be, if they wanted to, with a team that was starving for a quarterback, they could trade back, need to make sure they don't trade back too far in the draft, because then that would keep them from getting one of the top flight players that would be available. And so what the Colts did, and I mean, their roster's a mess, they're completely revamping their offense. They're revamping their defense and, and taking a defensive scheme that did not work here. They're going back to kind of the 4-3 cover to Buck, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, but that meant that the roster that they've got doesn't really suit the team that they want to put on the field, although you could argue for the last couple of years that that has also been true, that the team on the field is not the one that you really wanted to, to field. And, and because they had such glaring needs at, at all positions, I mean, whether you're talking receiver, whether you're talking running back, offensive line, defensive line, linebacker, secondary, the Colts need everything. All right, it doesn't matter. So what they needed to do was improve their team speed and get younger. That's one of the things that Ryan Grixon loved to do for whatever reason. He loved to bring in not just veteran free agents, guys that had been in the league for a few years. He liked to bring in guys who'd been in the league for a few years. And that's when you got your Trent Coles and your Andre Johnsons and Frank Gore. Now, I'm not going to disparage Frank Gore because in the couple seasons he was here in Indy, became one of my favorite all-time Colts. And I, I've been a Colts fan for a really long time, and I've liked a lot of players, and I loved 
Frank Gore. But if you're trying to build a team and you're trying to get younger, Frank Gore does not fit in to that MO. Those are the types of guys that Grixon brought in. And now Ballard wants to get faster and he wants to get younger. And when you have a roster that you don't feel works very well for what you want to do, then something that's valuable for you is to go and get more draft picks. So what the Colts did, I thought was very smart. They traded down from that three spot so the Jets could go at three and pick a quarterback. And the Colts got three second-round picks out of that. They got two second-round picks this year and then another pick for next year. And they continued to wheel and deal sort of throughout the course of the NFL draft. And they traded Henry Anderson, who I love but doesn't fit the new defensive scheme. So they, they moved around, got a guy they wanted, then traded another spot to get more. By the end of the day, the Colts had 11 draft picks. Quantity is not necessarily quality. When you feel like your roster has a lot of deficiencies, I think getting quantity and trusting your scouting team and your your talent evaluation should work for you all right. When the Colts traded that number three pick down and went down to number six, that meant bye-bye to Saquon Barkley, 100% for sure. He was probably going to be off the board anyway, and the Giants were probably going to take him if the Browns didn't, but... That did mean, for sure, bye-bye to Bradley Chubb. My gut instinct on all these teams is that Chubb was the best outside pass rusher in this draft, by far, head and shoulders, above everybody else. When the Colts traded down to six, it was unlikely that they were going to get Barkley. Well, I shouldn't say unlikely. It was impossible that they were going to get Barkley. It was still possible that they were going to get Chubb, but extremely unlikely. I didn't I didn't think he'd make it there and even though the Denver Broncos are in need of a quarterback, I don't think their quarterback situations especially settled. They couldn't pass up Chubb. They couldn't ca- pass up the idea of having Chubb with Von Miller in their defense attacking quarterbacks. So what that left the Colts with was Quentin Nelson from Notre Dame and I I will be the first to admit that picking an offensive guard with the sixth overall selection in the 2018 NFL Draft is not the most exciting thing in the world. I mean, offensive linemen aren't exciting. They're just not. Because, for fans anyway, they they don't score touchdowns, they don't catch passes, they don't run the ball, they don't sack the quarterback, they don't intercept passes. The best offensive lineman is one that you never talk about because that means they're doing their job. If guys are getting up the middle or guys are getting off the edge, then you know who the guy, you, you hear the names of the offensive linemen. And that's that's a bad thing. You don't want that. And it's just not an exciting position. I'm sorry for all you offensive line out there. It's a tough thing to say, but it's, it's true. There's just not much sexy about a 330-pound guy tries to stop the other team from sacking the quarterback. That said, it is one. It is the most important position out there aside from quarterback because you need a good offensive line to accomplish pretty much anything in the NFL. You want to run the ball, you need a good offensive line. You want to protect the quarterback, you need the offensive line. You need time to get that ball to receivers. The only people who can do that are your offensive line or your rare athletes like Andrew Luck or Cam Newton who can buy you some extra time run the ball, scramble around, and, and find guys. That that was the Colts' plan on the offensive line, was Andrew Luck is mobile, so we're just going to use that. That was the Ryan Grixon, apparently that was the Ryan Grixon coaching staff philosophy, because Andrew Luck got 
killed for most of his NFL career. And when you think back to all the hits that guy's taken, the lacerated kidney and the shoulder injury, and uh, he's had some concussions, I don't have any problem with the Colts taking what many people say is a generational player in Quentin Nelson. I watch, I, I'm a Notre Dame fan in college. I follow Notre Dame. That's the team that, you know, their game's on every week. I don't miss during the college football season. I usually watch IU and Purdue as well, but Notre Dame, that's appointment TV for them. Quentin Nelson on that left side of the line at guard, bad, 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 bad man. Might be a nice guy off the football field. On the on the football field, you don't want to cross him. He is big, he is fast, and he is nasty. And I hope it brings some attitude to that offensive line. And, and really, with him in the mix, and then the guy that they took from Auburn, Braden Smith, that they took, I think, in the third round, you're looking at 80% of a decent offensive line there with Anthony Costanzo on the left side. You're going to have Nelson there. I think you just go ahead and pencil him, slot him, slot him in there at, as your starting left guard. Ryan Kelly, who, yeah, he had some injuries last year, but when he's played, he's been pretty good. If you've got Smith from Auburn playing a strong line and probably playing, I'm thinking right guard, but you never know. Maybe the Colts see him as a right tackle. What you need to worry about is getting the right guy for right tackle and making sure that you have some quality depth. Assuming that hopefully everybody can stay healthy, nothing is ever given in any sport as far as health is concerned. Guys can trip going to the laundry room. They can get in a car crash. You know, they can roll roll their ankle in a routine drill. You just don't know what's going to happen. But assuming that these guys can stay healthy and gel together, and this is a lot of assumptions, mind you, Andrew Lux should have a good offensive line for the first time in his career, and they should not only be able to pass protect, but they should be able to consistently run the football. That is asking a lot. And heck, we don't even know if luck, what we're going to get out of him. I have no idea. Is he throwing tennis balls? Is he throwing medicine balls? Is he throwing tiny Nerf turbo footballs? I can't tell you, and the team's not going to tell you either. But I have no problems with the pick there for the Colts. If they thought Bradley Chubb was going to be the best pass rusher ever, and that they didn't think that there were other guys that they could get who would fit their system, and the fit their system is very important. The Colts and, and Chris Ballard knew their roster deficiencies they want to build a better football team and they believe that starts at the line and that is why four of their first five picks came on the offensive and defensive lines that is clearly how he wants to build a football team and I'm fine with that I'm tired of being a Colts fan and getting pushed around although really a a 4-3 defense usually entails smaller faster guys and they, they do tend to get pushed around a little bit. I mean, let's not pretend that while the the Colts had some decent defenses, and I use decent very charitably, even when they had a pretty good defense the year that they won the Super Bowl and they ran the cover two, you could usually push them around on the line of scrimmage. The 3-4 hybrid amoeba defense nonsense that Chuck Pagano was trying to do couldn't stop the run either. I mean, we saw New England just run all over the Colts in multiple games, but still, quality players Strong players on that line are are what the Colts were looking for. And I think that they got that. They've ignored that line for 
much too long, just depending on Andrew Luck to make plays. Didn't matter if you were Andrew Luck, Matt Hasselbeck, Charlie Whitehurst, Josh Freeman, Jacoby Brissett, anyone brave enough to go into center for the Colts got their butt kicked. Got their teeth smashed in. No matter what they did with that line, didn't work. The last draft that Grixon had, I think, you know, they, they did pick Ryan Kelly, and people were like, hey, see, that Ryan Grixon's finally fixing that offensive line. And Jim Ursa even told everybody that the offensive line was fixed. We knew that was a lie. What have you been doing since 2012? You, you, you drafted Luck. You had a fluke. I, I understand that. The first year the Colts had Luck and they made the playoffs was a fluke. Nobody expected that to happen. And that meant that because the Colts had early success with luck they didn't get higher quality in position draft picks your GM trading away a draft pick for Trent Richardson and oh man I am having some flashbacks about the Ryan Grixon era I don't think anybody liked him he was arrogant and that that's the difference between him and Chris Ballard I think Chris Ballard is a supremely confident guy I feel like Chris Ballard, when he opens his mouth, I feel like he knows what he's doing, and I feel like he knows he knows what he's doing. But he never comes off as arrogant. He comes off as confident. Whereas Grixon thought he was reading the tea leaves and had the magic eight ball, and he was the smartest guy in the room, and he was going to tell you that he was the smartest guy in the room, even though you really didn't think he was the smartest guy in the room. And that's really the difference between those two guys, to me, is... When Ballard gets up there and he talks, and he's much more accessible than than Grixon was during his time, but when Ballard gets up there and he talks, to me it feels like this is a guy who's got it together and knows what he's doing. Does he? Will the Colts put things together? That remains to be seen. But I have a lot of faith in Chris Ballard, and he's only in his second year as general manager, so we don't know exactly what's going to happen with this team because they've got roster cuts to make, they've got training camp to go through, and preseason football, and what's going on with Andrew Luck. I I just don't know. I do believe, unlike last year, well, let, let me backtrack. I think Jim Irsay believed it last year when he thought Andrew Luck would be ready for the season at some point. I think Andrew Luck believed that he was going to be ready for the season at some point. I think there was a genuine thought within the organization that that would happen, but it didn't because Luck admitted he took some shortcuts in his rehab. Things did not go well for him after that surgery. And so he ended up missing the whole season. Ended up getting put on the injured reserve in November. That was one of those things where people at work, you know, would say, well, they're really hiding the injury here. He's he's injured a lot worse than anybody said, and he's not going to come back. And I, I kept thinking, oh, no, he'll, he'll be back. He's going to come back. I have confidence he's going to be back. They were proven to be correct. He didn't come back. And while Jim Irsay was like, oh, yeah, Buck's coming back, I don't think Ballard ever said that, made that proclamation last year, but coming into this season, to me, I get the feeling that it's a different tenor from Ballard. I get a different tenor from Andrew Luck. I do think he's going to be ready to go this season. It's going to take him some time. I hope he's in training camp throwing some real footballs to real NFL players, because there's really not been any greater waste of NFL talent than what the Colts have done to Andrew Luck. People say he's a generational talent, a guy who's Better than Manning. Physical specimen, great mind for the game, and the Colts send him out every week and he wins games for him, but he keeps getting the crap knocked out of him because they can't figure out their offensive line or he holds the ball too long. I'm really looking forward to this Frank Reich offense in which the Colts are going to go some no huddle or the hurry up 
if you will. They're going to dink and dunk and take their shots instead of, you know, having your terrible offensive line try to hold defenses for a five or seven step drop every time. Jacoby Brissett was not the most experienced quarterback, obviously, when the Colts traded him to get him from New England. And Brissett did hold the ball on several occasions too long. He, he didn't quite develop that veteran clock in his head to know, you know, one, two, three, four, get rid of it. Didn't really have that last year, but I I still think he's a good player, and I'm glad the Colts are keeping him around. He'll be a good backup, and maybe they do eventually trade him. I don't know, but for right now, with not being 100% certain where Luck is, when he's going to be able to play, if he's able to play, keeping Jacoby Brissett around is a smart move on the Colts' part. Now, as far as the rest of the draft goes, I mentioned the Colts are changing defenses. They're going to go more to the 4-3, uh, cover-2 type of defense, and there are a couple reasons for that. One, I-, I don't think that Ballard favored the 3-4 scheme that the Colts tried to run. They never really had the personnel for it. Couldn't produce a pass rush. And and the Colts lost a lot of guys. They, they lost Vontae Davis. Couldn't give the big contract to Rashawn Melvin that he was going to call for in the market so they got a little bit younger in the secondary and I think they felt that a 4-3 scheme would be a little bit better for them it also means they need different players from what they had so as as much as it stunk to lose a guy like Henry Anderson who was a gamer and a a tough hard-nosed player he didn't fit the scheme that the Colts were going to use so he had to go because that, that hybrid 3-4 that was very successful in Baltimore when Pagano was the defensive coordinator just never materialized in Indianapolis. Probably for lack of personnel. They just didn't have the players to run it well. As I mentioned earlier, they've got so many deficiencies, whether you're talking about the offense, receivers. Tight end might be okay there. You've got Jack Doyle. He's been really good. You, you brought in Ebron from Detroit, who's been inconsistent but has some potential. Running back's a big question mark, but that's that's what happens when you take a guy like Frank Gore and let him go to free agency. But again, Frank Gore was not going to be the future of the ball club, and I, I would hate for him to languish here in Indianapolis on a team that really doesn't have much of a future for it. He's a much better player a much better guy he deserves better than that at least I don't know how the Dolphins are going to be this year but at the very least Frank Gore gets to go back home and and maybe they'll have a good season I don't know hope he does well because I I can tell you that guy still got a little bit of fuel left in the tank guy is in incredible shape that said one of the biggest areas of concern for the Colts for me is linebacker there's just not a lot there in terms of experience and in terms of game changers, they, they really don't have much. And they, they lost one of their top players, Edwin Jackson, in a terrible crash involving a drunk driver who hit him and his Uber driver. One thing the Colts had to do was bolster their linebacking core, which they did in this draft, including a very intriguing seventh-round prospect. With the 221st pick in the 2018 NFL Draft, our Indianapolis Colts select Matthew Adams, linebacker from Houston. Good for Matt Adams. Cougar fans were on me because I didn't have a draft profile for him. He is an active linebacker. He will come and strike you. That's right, folks. I've been drafted. Been told I need to work on my sideline-to-sideline mobility, so I will do that. But I did well in the shuttle. 40 was probably a little bit slower than I wanted, but I've got good closing speed. Overall, though, I I do think the Colts had a good draft. And it's easy to say. I could say that they had a bad draft, too. And I could be just as right either way. We don't know because... You know, Bill Pullian famously says, you don't really know if you had a good draft for a couple of seasons. When you're drafting guys, you're drafting based on potential, 
and you're drafting them based on fit with your team. And some people say the Colts reach for a couple of guys. If, if a guy fits well into your system and you have him rated high on your board, is that a reach? And some of the draft experts will tell you, yes, that's a reach because he wasn't on my board. If you as a team have a different board and you have these guys rated based on the systems that you're going to run, then how is that a bad pick? Nobody's going to know for a long time. Even if these guys don't develop immediately and become game changers in their first year, something might click for them in season two or season three, and suddenly this pick looks great. Maybe the guy hits it off real well in his first season and then drops off in seasons two, three, and four, doesn't end up resigning with the team, then he's a bust. You just don't know. But overall, I have a pretty good feeling about the draft. I like the fact that the Colts were very aggressive. I felt like they had a lot of mobility in this draft. They they moved up when they thought they could get a guy that they wanted. They moved back to get more picks when they needed to. They traded Henry Anderson, who I, I felt was a valuable player for them. But again, he didn't fit what they want to do next season, so why keep him on the roster? They used him to get some more picks. Ballard clearly wants to build the defensive and the offensive lines, and that's really what they concentrate on. They did snag a linebacker earlier. But a lot of people thought they had deficiencies at running back and wide receiver, and they do. Marlon Mack's an explosive player. I'm not sure he's in every down back, but maybe he can be. But the Colts snagged some really good guys in the middle rounds, middle and late rounds there, the skill positions. When they decide to focus on some guys, I, th I think they got some good ones, especially Deion Kane from Clemson. I think that guy was a real steal. I'm intrigued by the guy from Northern Iowa, Darius Fountain. Not sure what we're going to get from him exactly, but again, I, I trust the, the talent evaluations of the Colts. One of these guys could end up starting for this team because there, there's not, uh, the, the wide receiver cupboard is pretty empty. I mean, the Colts were never going to, throw the amount of money at Dante Moncrief that the Jaguars did, no doubt. But if they'd been able to bring him back for a reasonable price, you know, maybe it was worth it. It sounds to me like the organization was just kind of over Dante. And it's too bad. I, I thought he flashed some potential. Flashing potential and showing that potential week in and week out are completely different things. And Moncrief never showed that potential week in and week out. That's why he's no longer with the team. So they'll, they'll try to go with these younger guys. Really big on the running backs, Hines from North Carolina State and Jordan Wilkins from Mississippi. They're building themselves a nice, young core of runners. And I, I think in the offense that Reich's going to run, I, I think these receivers and running backs are going to fit in real well. And I, I hope it's a scheme of short passes, get rid of the ball quickly. That, that'll help that offensive line develop. That'll protect luck. Keep him as healthy as possible. You're still going to hold your breath every time he gets hit. You just hope that you don't have to hold your breath, you know, ten times a game like you did with poor Jacoby Brissett last season. So I, I don't give draft grades. I'm not smart enough to evaluate talent. I don't watch enough tape, a.k.a. I don't watch any tape. I just kind of go by what I see and what I hear about these guys. And overall, though, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with what the Colts did. They, they got players in positions that they needed. In some cases, maybe they did stretch a little bit and get a guy. In other cases, I think they got high-value picks for where they were, especially in those offensive skill positions. I think they I think they killed that. And again, the intriguing linebacking prospect out of Houston. Our Indianapolis Colts select Matthew Adams, linebacker from Houston. Good for Matt Adams. Cougar fans were on me because I didn't have a draft profile for him. <laughs> He is an active linebacker. He will come and strike you. Like that guy's name, you're really going to have to watch for that guy. But I, I do hope that Quentin Nelson is as good as everybody says he is. I, I mean, I, like I said, I saw him play for Notre Dame. Notre Dame could run the ball on the left side at will. Quentin Nelson was a huge part of that. He is, uh, as I said, a bad, bad man 
And while it's not a sexy pick, it's not the most electrifying pick to to get a offensive lineman there at six, especially a guard. You know, at least an offensive tackle, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But when you're, like, guard, you're like, those guys are invisible. But I don't think Quentin Nelson's going to be invisible. So I'm happy with what the Colts have given us. I'm going to address one more topic, and then I'm going to wrap things up here. I just would like to talk about my beloved Indiana Pacers. They overachieved this year, 48 wins, took the Cavs to seven games. Victor Oladipo was so good. And that team was so much fun to watch. That, that's When you have a season with a team that's that not much is expected out of. I mean, I think most people had the Pacers winning maybe 30 games. And if things went okay for them, maybe they would compete for, you know, the, the eighth spot in the East. They almost won 50 games. They almost got the fourth or third seed if things had bounced the right way for them, if they'd won a couple more games here or there. And it was such a good ride. You could tell that team was close, that they loved playing with each other, that the coach loved the team that they played for, and that those guys were not playing for themselves individually. They were playing for each other collectively. And outside of college basketball, a lot of times you don't see that much in the NBA. And I loved every single minute that I saw of the Pacers, even when they were down 20 points in a game. Because even when they were down 20 points, they rarely lost by 20 points. They always seemed to make a run, make a rally. And man, if if a couple of things had just bounced their way, if they could have just avoided some silly turnovers or made some shots down the stretch of a couple of those games that they lost in that series against the Cavs, they would have played the Raptors. I don't know if they would have swept the Raptors. They're not LeBron James, and they don't match up real great against Toronto. But we also have a pretty clear picture that the Raptors are a bunch of choke artists. So maybe the Pacers could have taken advantage of that. I don't know. Not a great thing to take advantage of, really. I think they could have they could have taken them. And you know, they the the, the Raptors just let <laughs> just just let the Cavs come in and just abuse them. You, you cannot argue with LeBron James, man. That guy is a great basketball player. I wish that he wouldn't whine so much to the officials, but then again, that's every NBA player these days. Doesn't matter whether you're a defensive specialist or a star or a mid-tier player in the league. Everybody whines to the officials. Even Victor Oladipo did it in the playoffs. And every once in a while, you'd see him kind of go off. And I could understand it because, you know, people would breathe on LeBron James during a layup or a drive and he'd get, get the whistle. Victor would get, you know, knocked down, slapped on the arm, hit in midair, and nobody would blow a whistle for him of course that's me talking as a Pacers fan which isn't quite unbiased but it really did feel that way in that series and it's it's too bad that the Pacers got that early lead in the series and couldn't quite capitalize on it I'm proud of them though because they really did have a chance where they could have folded in game six and said bye-bye to the series but instead they ran the Cavaliers out of the gym that game. And there's there's part of me that wonders if that was such a good thing. It was fun to watch for sure, but they were able to rest LeBron James a lot in the second half 
of that game because, you know, they got up by 30 points. Why, why, why does he need to be out there? You wonder if maybe he was able to get some rest and that helped him in game seven. But I think by the time we get into the playoffs, I mean, yes, LeBron James is human. Apparently, I think he's supposed to be anyway. I think by the time you get into the playoffs, though, the, the minutes game and, and stealing rest and stuff like that, it's important, but it's also overrated. LeBron James is going to give you everything he's got game in and game out. Doesn't mean I love him. Like I said, I, I, tired of him whining about everything that happens on the court and overacting in order to draw fouls and, and that sort of thing. But anyway, that that's the way the NBA is these days. All these guys do that. I really enjoyed watching the Pacers this season. I hope everybody who watched the team, they only had one national game this year, but I hope everybody who, who got a chance to watch the team, and especially when they were in the playoffs against the Cavs, gained an appreciation for them. I don't know what they're going to do in the offseason, I think they've got a really strong core if you look at Oladipo and Miles Turner and Sabonis, and you never know what you're going to get from Lance Stevenson, as I mentioned, I think, one time in my sports rants. Is, uh, Lance doesn't work anywhere else, but somehow, for whatever reason, he works great here in Indianapolis, and the Pacers fans love him. It's some of the biggest ovations out there, but between Oladipo and Miles Turner and Sabonis, and you, you mix in a few veterans here and there, I think the Pacers have a good core. They'll probably try to see if they can get another playmaker. But man, that was a fun team to watch. One of those teams where you just didn't want it to end. I will I will compare it to, to one of the teams that I love so much that really made me a Colts fan. Just a little background here. For a long time, I was a big Cincinnati Bengals fan. I grew up near Richmond, Indiana, and we're not far from Cincinnati, so... We, get, we got a lot of Cincinnati TV stations and radio stations, and so we get a lot of Ohio State and Cincinnati Reds, Cincinnati Bills. That's why I'm a Reds fan, and Indianapolis doesn't have a MLB team, so Reds are still, for better or for worse, and right now for worse, my baseball team. Zicky Woods and James Brooks and Boomer Esiason, and those, those were my, my teams, and we, we rooted for them for a long time. And I still pull for the Bengals. I, I still wish that, you know... They weren't historically a, an embarrassing franchise, but they're just kind of always going to kind of be that way, I think. The 1995-96 season, look, nothing was expected of the Colts. They were just sort of this perennial laughing stock of a team. And people always talk about the Manning years and how that made them a Colts fan. And that's true for a lot of people, and I can't blame them for that. Peyton was a great quarterback, and to see him go the way that he had to go for the Colts was tough. I don't cry at a lot of sports, but man, when he said goodbye and told Indianapolis how much the city meant to him, that, that got to me. And that sucked as a fan to have to watch that. So I don't begrudge anybody who fell in love with the Indianapolis Colts based on Peyton Manning and the excellence that he performed on the football field. But for me, my guy was Jim Harbaugh. Nothing was expected of this football team for the Colts that year. They'd brought in Craig Erickson as a high-profile quarterback. Harbaugh was sort of an afterthought on the roster. When they struggled in some games, they, they brought him in. He had a couple of comeback wins, and then suddenly the Colts were winning games, and they were 9-7, and seven and they got in the playoffs. And I loved that Indianapolis Colts team. And they beat the Chargers on the road in the first round of the playoffs. They beat the heavily favored Kansas City Chiefs on the road in the playoffs, thanks to 
Lynn Elliott. I, I don't think Kansas City Chiefs fans will ever forgive that guy. And then they, they had one more shot. They had a chance to make it to the Super Bowl in one of the greatest and most dramatic games I think I've ever seen. The Colts lost the AFC Championship game to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it came on a Hail Mary pass from Jim Harbaugh that landed on Aaron Bailey's chest, except he didn't necessarily, kind of his stomach, he didn't really realize that it was there yet. By the time he had grabbed for it, the, the ball had fallen onto the turf. The pass was incomplete, but that was a dramatic game. Quentin Coriat dropped what would have been a pick-six touchdown. They gave Cordell Stewart a touchdown for the Steelers, even though he stepped out of bounds and came back in to get the ball. Nobody noticed that somehow. It's a game I will never forget, and that's a team that, I love. It is the highest of praise for me to say that this Indiana Pacers team reminded me of that Indianapolis Colts team. Because that, that strikes a very emotional nerve with me. I was 15, 16 years old, 15 years old when that Colts team was out there. And here I am, 37, and gushing about a, a Pacers team 22 years later. Nobody expected much from the Colts. They made this incredible run and came a pass away from making it to the Super Bowl. And the Pacers, while they don't have the postseason pedigree, are very similar. In which these guys that nobody thought anything of rose up to the challenge. The sum was greater than its parts. And Victor Oladipo was a star at IU, became a star for the Pacers, and he loves Indiana. And Indiana loves him. And then you got Sabonis, who is a really young guy, super skilled. And when he gets that jump shot down from long range, when he gets that to go consistently, he's just got so many dimensions to his game. I saw so much growth from the team this year, and I did not want that ride to end. It just couldn't make enough plays down the stretch in the games that they lost. They were never blowouts. Even even the game where it looked like the Cavs were going to run them off the floor, the Pacers were, gonna, were a three-point make away from tying things up. And so I just want to give a little love to my Indiana Pacers, and I wish them nothing but the best, and I, I cannot wait for the next season. I just enjoyed watching that team play so much. Stung when it was over. I'm so glad that it happened because I had so much fun with that team, and they clearly had so much fun together as well. So we covered the miserable Cincinnati Reds, we covered the Indianapolis Colts in the draft, and I talked a little bit about the Pacers. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Matt Adams Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Statomatty, S-T-A-T-O-M-A-T-T-Y, at Statomatty, or drop me an email at matt at mattadamswriter.com. That's matt at mattadamswriter.com. Thanks for listening.